Hello, I'm your host, Ian Gibbs. Welcome to the Learnability Show. Whether you're self-employed or a mega multinational, being innovative must surely be one of your top priorities if you want to stay in business. But is innovation something you can learn to do better? And if so, how? To answer these questions today, we're going to talk to someone whose speciality is innovation and design thinking. He spent 20 years on four continents giving talks, workshops, and coaching on how to think differently and reap the benefits. So can we have a big round of applause for Mark Mackey. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, Ian. It's good to be here and from the same city even. Fantastic. Indeed, we share the same city, the beautiful city of Barcelona. Yeah. Now, the Learnability Show is all about different aspects of learning, education, training, you name it. And your speciality, as I've just mentioned, is innovation. Could we start off by uh, asking you, how did you get into innovation? Uh, how did I get into it? I, I guess I, I got into it at age nine. When my uh, when my parents bought me, um, I was always a very curious child, but then most children are, I presume. And so that isn't exceptional. But what, what sort of set me on my path was that I, I graduated from Lego at age nine to, which was quite a leap at the time, to something called a, a ZX Spectrum or a ZX Spectrum, depending on which part of the pond you're on. Uh, and the, the, the ZX Spectrum was, was in fact sort of the first... Uh, small-sized, compact, mass-consumer computer device. And it was very beginner-friendly. And you could just hook it up to a you know, a bulbous TV back in the day. And it didn't have a hard drive. You had to load You had to load things like programs and games on a cassette. There might be people listening who don't even know what a cassette is. Look it up. It's a very cool-looking thing. Also very useful back in the day for doing mixtapes, for finding girlfriends. But I digress. Um, so, so that was my sort of initial uh, encounter with, with innovation and, and I haven't stopped since. So I've been kind of in, in innovation throughout my life. But then, you know, I set off to China on a whim uh, one day from Belgium, where I'm originally from. Not my fault. Um, I set off to China on a whim and just ended up there and built a whole life there, including finding my wife, starting two businesses. And so I got swept up unwittingly. I didn't really intend that, but I got swept up in what was really the greatest wave of innovation the world had ever seen in one place. That was just as China's wave of innovation started with the Olympics and then later the Expo and all of that. So that fed that innovation drive even further. And I haven't stopped since really. And then I got into building an innovation lab uh, with a partner. And then I got into coaching and training and public speaking about creativity and innovation. So it's been a theme throughout my life. So to pinpoint the beginning, I would say age nine, the arrival of my ZX Spectrum and onwards until now. Just flying off on a tangent, how much Chinese did you pick up? Well, I mean, I lived in mainland China. I, I, did, I spent a good eight months living in Hong Kong. I guess for me, once you cross six months in a place, you can say that you lived there. So that's the benchmark in my head. Don't know why. There's no official uh, benchmark for it as far as I know. But most of my life in China was in mainland China. So outside of Hong Kong and Taiwan, basically. Right. That's a 
touchy subject. Um, so mainland China, Shanghai, Beijing, Chengdu, Guilin, various cities, and they're all Mandarin speaking is what I'm trying to say. So the Chinese that I did learn and pick up was all Mandarin Chinese. So, so what they call Putonghua, the, the main Chinese, because there are, I mean, there are hundreds of languages in China and, and this, this standardized language wasn't really prevalent until, you know, the, the, the 1940s really, really. So this, this idea of Chinese is, is very new. And have you retained any of it or is it, has it all gone now? It's terrifying how it falls out of your ears. And that the only consolation that I have for how much of it I lost to the point where I'm, I can just about get around and not starve to death in China, find my way to the train station and, and you know, in the bathroom and such vital things like that. But uh, the only consolation I have is my wife. She, she has a, a degree in Chinese and she was fluent, fluent. We met in Beijing. And even she, in the last eight, nine years since we've been away, she's lost it as well. So it's not just me. <laughs> it's everyone. You have to keep greasing the wheels, don't you? Oh, as far as languages goes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Anyway, so back on track with innovation then. Now, just to check here that we don't have a, another curse of knowledge situation. When you talk about innovation, what for you is innovation because it's a fairly nebulous subject it is terrifyingly nebulous considering the, the the reality really i can almost state the fact that innovation is one of the most important and desperately needed skills in the world right now we need to innovate just about everything including solutions for climate and, and every problem in the world requires innovation but it's so ill-defined what is it and so innovation to me is the ability to tap into the inner resourcefulness that everyone possesses, inherently possesses, and unlock that inner resourcefulness to come up with smart solutions. Now, that's still a little bit vague, but it's, it's interesting to define it for what it isn't, I think. And one of the biggest misconceptions that I go around trying to dispel, even as a sort of a, a, an absolute, complete, self-confessed nerd, total geek, loves technology, you know, has every gadget known to man, and woman and otherwise, uh, is that innovation isn't about technology. That's the biggest myth I'm, I'm trying to dispel from the get-go. Is like innovation isn't about technology because usually when you mention the word innovation, people immediately go towards things like technology, virtual reality and metaverses and the internet and all of that. Because for the last 40 years of our existence, before that as well, certainly the last 40 years and even more so the last 20 Innovation has been synonymous with uh, technology, but as they say, causation is not the same as correlation. There is a strong correlation between technology and innovation, but at the heart, innovation is about the ability to unlock resourcefulness that everyone has. There are, there are still people out there who think that they're not the creative type, and that's a completely wrong way of thinking. It's just that they haven't found a way to unlock that because the greatest innovations usually are very simple things, right? So innovation really is that ability to, as Apple put it, think think different and, and unlock new ways of using things that we already have. That's also how I would define it. So I'm, I'm sure when you give your talks on innovation, you explain various uh, stories or give various examples. What are some of your favorite examples of recent innovations that go along with what you say that don't rely on technology that 
are just doing things in different ways? Well, there, there, oh, there's an endless litany, but one of the companies that I, I really do like talking about and have no sponsorship, uh, it, it sounds like it because I always talk about them. Um, one of the companies is IKEA. Uh, IKEA to me is one of the great innovation companies because first of all, their initial core product isn't really about technology. It's just about doing something that has existed since the beginning of time. We've had furniture for in some form or another for 10,000 years. And so they just innovated. So the, the, the CEO founder is now deceased, but they innovated just by thinking differently about what it could be. Just a simple thing that we take for granted that people might be happy to pay less so long as you give them relatively, depending on taste, but generally accepted well-designed furniture for a low cost, the only trade-off being that they put it together themselves. Now, you, you haven't really leveraged ultra-modern technology by doing that, right? The initial versions of that idea were not technology-bound at all. There were no computers involved. So to me, IKEA is a, is a great example of, of innovation. The other example that I give in the context of IKEA is this, think how unnatural it is, really, if you think about it, to put a meatballs restaurant in a furniture store, we we, I mean, we take it for granted now. It's, it's kind of obvious that you go and have a meal in a furniture shop, but it isn't. It's taking two completely disparate concepts and putting them together in, in a way that connects with people. And that's the other part of innovation is that human centricity. So there are, there are lots of examples uh, like that. You know, one of the others that just pops into my mind is um, a Canadian company that was on Dragon's Den. Dragon's Den is one of these shows where people pitch an idea like Shark Tank. I think most people know the concept. You sit in front of five people, you pitch your idea, you might get an investment or not. And there was someone who came up, was in Dragon's Den Canada, with the reality that in this case, mostly for women with, with long hair, they take a shower and then usually that's often that happens at night, but they don't want to go to bed with wet hair because what happens in the morning is that, you know, you look like, a, you know, a, a primitive version of, of Einstein and they don't want that. So what all, all that inventor did was, was invent some foam contraption. There was no tech involved, a foam contraption that you would curl into your hair as a woman or a long haired man, if you like. And then you would go to sleep with your hair sort of wet. And when you wake up, you had the most beautiful perm. And, and that's, I mean, that's brilliant to me. It's just really thinking differently. So those are some examples, small scale and a very big scale about innovation. Is there a difference between innovation and creativity or is it, are they really just two sides of the same coin? The way I see it, there are different stages in the same process. So really the, the process or the, 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 the chain reaction or the chain of command, if you like, that happens is you start at, at the, the foundation that with anything in life, which is the inner inner depths, which is that unlocking of resourcefulness that I was talking about. That is a it's a physical, it's a physiological, psychological thing that happens at, on all levels that actually triggers creativity. So creativity is the second layer and the creativity is what allows for the innovation. So that's sort of the, the mechanism, if you like, of, of what, of how those concepts relate to one another. 
would you say that you are an innovative person yourself or do you see yourself as more of a traditionalist? Uh, no, I think I think I'm an innovator. Yes, uh, in, in in my own way, of course, everyone defines the scale of that. But I mean, innovation takes many shapes, right? For me, it isn't again, it can't be narrowly defined as creating a product. Initially, that was what innovation is about creating a product. We've expanded that now with, with the Internet world being much more, you know, invisible and intangible. We've we've grown to accept that the intangible like services are also innovative. <clears throat> but we have to see that much broader and, and consider that you can innovate your own life, which to me, when I, when I left on a whim to China, that was a form of innovation because that went through those stages of the inner resourcefulness telling me I needed to change and, 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 and my pent-up sort of sense of creativity wasn't fully blossoming. And then I was able to kind of unlock that in my way through a process. And that led to this burst of creativity. And that creativity led to the self-innovation of going to China. So that's on a micro scale of me. So, so innovation can happen at every level. I've developed products, software, sort of, you know, really technical stuff. But I don't consider that more valid as an innovation than, than my departure to China. So, so we, it depends how narrow, narrowly you want to define it. But I, I suggest seeing it very broadly. So in that sense, yes, I am an innovator, but so are you. Because having heard that, probably everyone's going to think like, well, thinking about it that way, I have innovated in my life. And the answer is almost certainly, unless you've been locked in the basement for the, for the last three decades or however old you are, um, you, you have innovated at some point or another. So, so the answer is yes. Okay, now let's get to the crunch question then, shall we? Given that you help companies and individuals become more innovative, how do you do it? There's a number of ways. I mean, one of the, one of the things I do frequently, which I'm actually doing now and today and every week, is coaching. Uh, in this case, cohorts, cohort-based coaching. I'm working with a a large global mining company training their cohorts who are being asked to innovate something. And then in the end of it, of the process, within six months, they have to go in front of their, the senior people in the company and present that innovation. And that takes the form of coaching, which is mostly me explaining or getting rid of the misconceptions and trying to help people think of ways of unlocking that, what we can call level one now, the inner resourcefulness. So I start with that. I try and get people to understand, yes, you are a creative. You may be an accountant. You may be a mining drill engineer, but you're still a creative. So let's start with that baseline and then unlocking that through various kind of exercises like putting two completely disparate ideas and put them together into an innovation. Kind of what I hinted at with those actual innovations. But I say to people, okay, let's do an exercise. Take a bicycle and a, and a juicing machine, put them together and create an innovation, something that has tangible, perhaps commercial value. You can do that with many things. So I run these exercises uh, to help people on their way and unlock that, that, you know, get it flowing. So that's one thing uh, that I do. Then the public speaking, obviously, to an extent is orientated towards that as well. I'm doing a, a keynote in Zurich in September for people in the travel industry and the meetings industry. 
And they're, they're a slow to evolve industry in terms of technology adoption and all that. So I go in and try to do the same thing. Talk about these three levels. Give lots of examples. People like to be connected to things that they can conceive of, not abstracts. The IKEA example and many other, many, many other examples of like, look, this, this is how people innovated, large and small. And then the, the, the third way, which we just started really, is um, with something that I'm the most excited about really, is, uh, is our innovation retreats. So one of, the, one of the fundamental problems that we've created for ourselves in the last 50, 60 years and beyond is this corporatism in terms of innovation. Now, I'm not knocking corporate thinking in, in any way. I mean, we need corporations. They're part of a giant ecosystem. The only problem is they run up against serious innovation blocks because of the fundamental reality that innovation stems from a very different source than many of the other skills that you need in a corporate environment. The finance knowledge, the accounting, the engineering, the structural stuff, the mechanics of the, the cogs of the whole thing. And creativity comes from a, a very different source. So what I, my mantra has become, you can't innovate from a boardroom. You can't be in that context of four walls and suits and ties or even semi-formal gear and, and you know, whiteboards and post-it notes and all of that. That's the corporate way of addressing innovation. It doesn't, it doesn't work. It's like, it's, it's like trying to, to become a grand slam tennis player from a, you know, from a, a, a toilet cubicle. You, you, you can try, but it's just not the right environment to train. You need to be out on the court. And so this is similar. So the innovation retreats will run here in, in Catalonia, outside of Barcelona, in beautiful stone Macias, Macias being farmhouses effectively, beautifully restored, so natural, wholesome environments where we are going to take a 360 uh, approach. We've, we've created a whole methodology around it called IMBS 360. I stands for innovation. MBS stands for mind, body and soul. And 360 stands for, well, 360 degrees. The idea being that if people are going to be innovators, really top level innovators, because we want to achieve that, we have to treat them like athletes. We really have to treat them like, like athletes. And to do that, to nurture any athlete, you have to look at the whole human being, not just their mind. So you have to, which means we bring in things like sustenance, like nurture. We have a nutritionist who's part of the retreats for six days to set up a nutrition plan to, to help your body energize and get the blood flowing to your brain because that's where the creativity happens. We have a, a psychology and neuroplasticity expert who helps with the psychological aspect of things, of helping people through mindfulness and through Q&As and through all kinds of exercises innovate. We have a high-tech component, which is where I come in. We do things in virtual reality collaboratively, but equally, we're going to innovate in ways that are innately human, like we did 10,000 years ago. Like, for example, when you arrive at the retreat, the first thing you're going to do after the handshakes and all that is you get a giant block of clay million-year-old soil, and you get to make your own plate and then decorate it. That plate, that is what you eat from for the rest of the week. And that's, that's a very powerful thing because it gets people in a, in a completely different frame of mind. Most of these top-level C-suite people, you know, 
very accomplished, all of that. But they, they've lost touch with the reality of, of the, their physicality. You know, they have probably haven't played with clay since they were, you know, six years old. So we're going to bring all that back. And really the whole point, again, is to unlock that inner resourcefulness. And you can only do that in natural surroundings. And by looking at the whole person, which is sustenance, mind, body, and for lack of a better word, soul. So that's the essence of it. You mentioned level one. Yes. Innovation. Does that imply that there's level two, three, four, five? When I talk about level one, I'm really talking about that, that, that almost that hierarchy of, of the, the innovation structure that is in every person, which is the deepest sort of unconscious point is that inner resourcefulness that is dormant, that's unlocked, uh, that's locked for most people. That's what I call level one. You, you don't even, worry about it you don't even think about it because it's so dormant for most people that it's just non-existent i'm not a creative i don't it doesn't even occur to people that they might be extremely creative and capable of incredible innovation even if they're an accountant or a you know whatever uh, they, they, their title may say so that's level one is that unconscious dormant low level hum that most people are not even aware of Level two is that manifest creativity where you start manifesting and you see a, you see a CEO with, with, with a lot of gusto design a clay plate and decorate it like a, like a, like a four-year-old would and, and getting excited about that. So that's level two. And then level three is, is really the more emancipated manifest level of innovation where you go like, okay, I'm, I'm sort of open now. And now we're going to talk about the things that I talk about more than my, my partner coaches in the retreats, which is technology, things like that. Like the, the, the tools, the, the heavy weapons to actually manifest that level of creativity in the, in the modern world, which is technology driven, virtual reality, augmented reality, blockchain, whatever it may be. But by that point, people have gone through these levels and they know what to do with these tools rather than just have them and throw them at every problem, which is what happens at the moment. They're all, they're all, we're all given this power, you know, you VR and blockchain, you, you, anyone can set up a blockchain now, even if you know what, don't know what it is, but like everyone throws it at the problem without knowing why or how to, to leverage it because it hasn't been unlocked. So that's, that's the levels that I'm speaking of. When you talk, the example that you've given then about the creativity involved in creating your own plate, which sounds wonderful. Um, it just makes my hands go all tingly just thinking about doing it. Here you've got an example where a person is given a task and the limited resources to do it. So what they come up with is, I would see that as a fairly linear process. You're given an objective, resources, a process, result. Yeah? But I'd imagine that a lot of company innovation doesn't work like that. Or am I wrong? It doesn't work like that because obviously individual creativity and innovation are much less complex than, than organizational innovation. Right? Every Every mind and every opinion and every soul that you add to the mix almost exponentially increases the complexity of the system. That's true for any system. 
the more parameters you know and throw it in any system, whether it's engineering or, or innovation or anything else, the more parameters you throw in, the more complex the machinery immediately. It's like cogs, you know, if you visualize the cogs in a, in a, in a gearbox of a, of a car or just cogs spinning and creating this giant contraption, which we've all seen in classrooms. With every cog you add, yes, you add an enormous amount of potential to the machine to drive, to drive a drive shaft or whatever else it may have to do. But you're also immediately dramatically increasing the complexity of that system. And of course, that's what organizations are. They're complex systems of many minds and they're not cogs. In most cases, they're actually human beings. So they're not as reliable as cogs in a way, right? So they, 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 the, the cog might fit one day and not the other day. So you have to factor all of that in. So innovation on a, on a company level is much different than on, on an individual level, much, much more complex. And that's why you need systems, methodologies, frameworks for managing that. And one of the frameworks that I, that I use, that I, that I really stand behind and, and advocate and teach is, is design thinking. Design thinking is also a very, very misconstrued methodology, right? So, so I can, I can talk about that for hours and I won't, but you know, design thinking is a very simple yet powerful mental framework for innovation on an individual level. You can apply it individually, but particularly on an, on a, on a more global organizational level to work with teams and allow them to almost innovate as one organism. Turning, turning the team into, into one hive mind almost that is the individual innovator. That's sort of the, the crux of it. It's like you, you can't innovate with 20 different opinions unless you, you find a way to turn those 20 different people into one hive mind, like a mini neural network that you can treat as one person and then have them go through the stages. That's sort of the gist of it. And design, the design and design thinking, because design thinking gets a lot of critique from a certain part of the spectrum, in particular from the design world itself. But that's because it's really a, a badly named methodology. We roll with it now because, well, someone gave it that name. But the design and design thinking is not referencing design in the conventional context of graphic design or product design or you know making things look good. It's design in a much broader sense that the design being the creation of something new out of nothing, effectively. So that's that's what design is. So design, it should be called innovation thinking, really. How much of it then is trying to find a new solution to the problem? And how much is it of trying to find the solution that you might already have and trying to find the right problem that you can address, if you understand what I mean? Um, I think so. I mean, th this one, this one thing that stands out is that we have somewhere, I think, around the past industrial revolution, somewhere around the, let's say, the, the 19th century, somewhere around that period, early 19th century, real industrial revolution peak. We, we, something switched, something really dramatically switched, which is before that, for the, for the longest period, for, for hundreds of thousands of years, certainly tens of thousands of years, 10,000 years since the Neolithic, since the first settlements, we, by necessity, we designed products for a need, right? 
And, and, the, and the reason we designed that and the, the reason why those designs really worked is because the people creating the product were actually people very close to the need through observation. In many cases, they were the same people who had the need. And that's a big thing. For example, one of the, one of the things that I talk about often is arrowheads. How much time do you spend thinking about arrowheads? Not, not much at all. But arrowheads are probably one of the most successful innovations in, in human history. It's one of the only products that has seen continuous use for, as far as we know, at, at this point, 65,000 years. Name me one other product that has seen consecutive use for 65,000 years. And the reason that happens is because the people who came up with that innovation, did it based on a very tangible, observable need that they themselves also had. Those people in those tribes, they had the same need as anyone else because they were in those tribes. So they observed. Observation is a big one in design thinking. They could observe from the front lines what the actual need was, and they could react to that and iteratively, my favorite word, word in the whole world, iteratively come up with solutions. And then what happened? So for the longest time, we did that. You know, whether it's amphora in ancient Rome or, you know, um, catapults to assault castles in the, in the Middle Ages and all kinds of good and bad things. But something happened in the, in the Industrial Revolution is we turned that, started turning that onto its head. We started creating solutions for which we could convince people there was a problem, also known as the capitalist system. Now, I'm not, I'm not going into a diatribe against capitalism. That's, I'll let someone else do that on your podcast. But I'm just talking about the mechanics of that, that we started to create these solutions for the pure and simple reason that, yes, they would probably fulfill a need, but not a drastic need like before. They were a market opportunity. And now we've come to a point where many more solutions are created seeking problems to get enough traction than the other way around. There are still many companies that create actual solutions from observation to problems. And those are great design thinking, innovation thinking companies. But much of what we create is, is these, um, you know, these, these solutions looking for a problem, looking for a market. One of the best metaphors that I've seen for that in a cartoon form is, you know, um, someone designed this, this cat play pole, you know, these giant pole with multiple levels and boxes the cat can crawl into. And that's sort of a solution looking for a problem because really what through observation, the, the market, the fluffy market has already decided before is that all you need is a box. That's what you need. It's a cardboard box. That's what the, that's what the market through observation, that's what the market will tell you. You take one of these big things and you put a cardboard box next to it and every cat's going to sit in the box. So that's where we arrived is we, we've started more and more and more. And, and that's also my worry around innovation and the lack of innovation training that's going on in the world. It's getting better, which is great. That's why I have work. But there's still a lot of lack of understanding of these dynamics. And so you have all these things coming out trying to solve a non-existent, like think of, for example, this metaverse hype. You know, the metaverse is a prime example of this. Like no one, no one needs, you know, and then selling land in the metaverse and selling digital items that doesn't, don't exist. No one needs that stuff. That is not, you know, we're trying to eradicate scarce, scarcity from the planet. We're trying to eradicate that concept. 
not recreated in the virtual world. And then what happens obviously with those kind of things is inevitably they crash. And that's when innovation really happens after the crash. People pick themselves up, retain the nuggets of things that work and then build on that. I just have to, to share this based on your observation of what cats do with cardboard boxes. A few years ago for my kids, I, I don't know what it was. I think it was a, a, a table football game, whatever. But they, the kids, my two kids, they spent more time playing with the cardboard box that the, the thing came in than the thing itself. And any toy manufacturer out there who wants to innovate, just sell cardboard boxes, packets of cardboard boxes for kids. They'd love it. They, they spent hours with it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, every, and that's again, like there's something very profound in that is, is that concept of observational innovation. That's what I preach. I'm about to get after this. I'm about to get on a call with one of the largest mining companies in the world a $45 billion turnover company. And they struggle with this. And I tell them the same thing. It's like, you have to go back to observing your, not your clients, stop thinking about them as clients, your community, think about them as your community, start observing them. And I don't mean asking, you know, sort of um, questions that inevitably lead the witness, so to speak, that put ideas in their head, because that's often what happens with surveys. You actually plant the answer in people's head by by the very nature of asking the question. You know, it's like quantum mechanics, by the fact that you observe a particle, it changes. So it's similar in that. So asking questions has a very limited consequence for the power of innovation. It's observation. It's looking at, and as a parent... And most parents will testify to this, same as you, when, when, when I unwrap the inevitable next geeky gadget that arrives at my home, I'll unpack it. And the first thing my daughter, who's seven, almost seven, comes in the room for is the box. So there's a powerful, there's a powerful hint in that, you know, like maybe just give them a pile of boxes and see what happens. And so, yeah, so completely agree with you. Yeah, and, and, and same same experience time and time again. The Toy Box Company. There you go. We'll team up and we'll create our company after this podcast. Right. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> Just boxes. Uh, but yeah, I think a, a lot of the issues about creativity and innovation is just, just observing, actually, rather than creating something new. Uh, I mean, th- this was, for instance, how, if I'm right, uh, Viagra, came to be commercialized it was it was they were not intending to create viagra and it was it was an an incidental observation of the side effects that they said right okay let's deal with a different problem we've got the answer here but let's let's, let's use it for something else let's sidestep the the freudian implication of picking viagra as an example and and look at uh, another similar field in pharmaceuticals Something that without which we probably would have two, three, four hundred, five hundred million people less on the planet, as in they wouldn't have survived. Penicillin. Penicillin came about in that exact way through sheer observation. A rather clumsy man who didn't have a great habit of cleaning up his experiments before he left on holiday came back and without this, this sort of habit of observation, which he had, he wouldn't have noticed that, that one of these Petri dishes had 
a remarkable phenomenon that had occurred while he was away, where the bacteria had sort of, you know, it's an interesting story to, 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 to read about. And that's through observation. So it's very similar. That's where the, that, that's the secret sauce. A modern day example that I could share is also, I understand that there was a, a, a manufacturer of washing machines. And I'm not sure where it was, but they had a technical department and the technician went out to, to try and fix their washing machines. And every now and then the fella turned up and the washing machine, the, the filter was absolutely clogged, solid with dirt. And we said, you know, this is just absurd. It, 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 this is why it's not working. This is what you're doing with it. And the, the fellow who had the washing machine said, well, I use it to wash my potatoes. And he was a farmer and potatoes need to be cleaned before they, they get sold. And anybody else would have said, well, don't be stupid. You don't wash your potatoes in the washing machine. But what they did was they said, well, this is interesting. Small farmers need to wash their products. Let's make a small adjustment to how the filter works, make it in a really, a really hardcore filter. And they converted their washing machines into potato washers and started making money like that. And so, yeah, it's, I think a lot of innovation is just taking, just reframing a problem and say, right, this is now an opportunity. Yeah, there's this famous, uh, famous anecdote of, uh, and apparently it's not an urban myth that sort of cross-checked it a few times. And that happened a few years ago where some, some young man was intrepid enough to do something that technically isn't against the rules anyway. There's no rule book that says you can't. And he brought, uh, he was on a, on a, a flight in the US, sort of a long flight in domestic, two, three hours, whatever it was. And he, he brought several, um, pizza boxes onto the plane. So, so hot pizza. So in one of these wrappers, you know, that keeps them warm, like we see with the couriers. And he had like four pizzas in there, sliced and everything. And of course, the, the smell of pizza starts wafting through the airplane. And, and they ask him, like, what, like, surely you're not delivering pizza two, three hours away. He said, no, no, no. People get on the plane. They're hungry. All they get is crap. I'm going to sell these. I'm going to sell these for $5 a slice. And I promise you, I will sell out. What happened? All gone. I mean, brilliant. He didn't break any rules. There's no, there's no rule book that says you can't bring pizzas onto the plane. And he sold them for five, five bucks a slice and made a, a nice, handsome profit to cover his flight ticket, basically. So, I mean, that's innovation. Zero technology. It reminds me of, it was in one of Malcolm Gladwell's books. He gives this story of a basketball league in schools and this a father was asked to coach a basketball team and he'd never had much experience in basketball and he watched a game and what he realized was that when you score a basket then the 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 team that's just lost if you like that 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 point Somebody, one of the players stands at the baseline and they throw the basketball to one of the other four members. And, said, and, and what usually happens is that the other five players from the opposite team that have just scored run back into their own half. And he says, why? There's, there's no point for doing that because 
you've got five of them against four of the other team who are receiving. So if they just went in straight away, they've got a one-person advantage. And so this is what he did. He, he got his team to stay in the attacking half and basically stop them from playing the ball. And it worked. They won the league. But basically, I think they had to change the rules because they said, well, that's, that's not playing fair. And he said, well, I'm not breaking any rules. That's, that's what it is. And I think, yeah, it's, it's, we create our own boxes that are not necessarily the, the size that they could be. We've got more freedom and we just get trapped into our own set ways of thinking. Yeah, 100%. I mean, one of the things that I'd like to get at for myself, but also for people, society in general, is, is this idea that, and, and we're moving in the right direction. I think now with COVID, there is these big global debates about work-life balance, about mental health, about remote work. All of these dynamics are in play now, and they're not going away again, fortunately. They'll, they'll drop back a bit, but they're not going away entirely. It's happening on the highest level, right? Apple is fighting. Apple, $3 trillion companies fighting internally its own employees because they don't want to go back to... And that's a company with a lot of flexibility and leeway and money and everything. So these things are happening, but you're sort of pulling from both sides, I think. And that's a, you know, you, you've got to get people to... And companies, more importantly, to accept that one of my other mantras is that creativity and productivity cannot coexist. So that's a phrase I often use in my keynotes. It's like creativity and productivity cannot coexist. You're either contemplating or you're, you're, you're being productive. Not both, not at the same time. And yet the, the, the great problems of any age are solved through imagination, which comes from contemplation. So effectively, we, we're in this rat race where, we ha where we're not stopping enough to realize that by stopping and taking a step back and contemplating, we will actually be able to overcome all these problems rather than just racing and, and keep butting up against the wall in the rat race. Because the problem, as has been said, the problem with the rat race is that even if you win, you're still a rat. You know, So you've got to come out of that paradigm and get to a point where you know, you're doing 50% contemplation and 50% execution. And that's such a counterintuitive thing for a, a, a neo-capitalist society that has gone through waves of industrial revolution. And, and it's just work, output, output. But we're, we're looking at diminishing returns. Not just that. Far worse. We're looking at the breakdown of our ecosystem and all of these things. So it's got to, to turn around where you get people to say, okay, focus now on level one, as I like to call it. Because when you do that and you do it successfully, profits will take care of themselves. The biggest, pro the biggest fortunes are going to be made in the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years through solutions to actual problems, back to the Neolithic, back to the, the arrowhead, things that will last the test of time. You know, I mean, does anyone think we're going to be talking about iPhones in 65,000 years? We'll probably be talking about who, who's got the biggest rocks. Uh, I won't be talking at all, but uh, <laughs> yeah, someone will. <laughs> no, no. So, the, so that, that was the gist of it is that, you know, we, we need to get people to, to do what you said. Is like you have a much bigger box than you think you do. But to fill that or to leverage that in this met metaphor, you've got to, 
You're not going to be able to do this by being more quote-unquote productive. And that's a very counterintuitive message, but it's starting to resonate. It's also often lost their fears, but it's starting to resonate because people are starting to see it. Most of the workforce is burnt out. Most companies are not innovating. Most people have lost work-life balance. We have this great resignation thing. We have all of these. We have, which the one that bothers me, we have the complete breakdown of our ecosystems. We're not going to get it. We're not going to get there through productivity. We've got to get rid of that idea. That product, that, that was industrial revolution thinking. Innovation is not about productivity. Innovation being smart. Like Bill Gates once said, like he will always, he'll always look for the, for the smartest, laziest person possible because they're going to find the smartest way to get something done without much effort or something like that. Right. Which is true. That's what you want. If we've got somebody listening who is uh, intelligent and lazy and they're interested in, in you know, trying to become a little bit more innovative, what sort of advice or uh, activities would you suggest for them? Um, I would start really small and, and get used to the idea of innovation, which simply starts by do, do an exercise Every morning when you go out into the street, hopefully you leave the house once a day at least, and, and just find, whether it's in the shop or in wherever, so long as you can see, hopefully anyone who's listening can, um, pick two items, two, two things that you see in the street, two concepts even, that are not connected in any way, and find a way in your mind to connect them. Turn them into a, a product or a business model. Of, of something. Again, you see, you see a flower shop and you see someone walking a dog. Nothing to do with each other. A absolutely. But maybe put them together and see if there's a way that you can innovate. Maybe there's a, a dog minding flower cabin where pedestrians can leave their dogs while they go for breakfast. And then when they come back, there's a good likelihood that they will also pay for a bouquet of flowers. I don't know. Pick two random disconnected things and put them together. It's like a game. You involve your kids as well, except it'll be embarrassing because they'll beat you every time. Right? Because they don't have this doctrine of perfectionism, of productivity, and, you know, pounded into their heads yet, hopefully. So, so that's something that I would practically do. On a, on a bigger level, come and ask me to train you, <laughs> you know. But on a small level, that, that's, that's how I would start. Like, don't, don't try to reinvent the wheel. Just, just start with, with that simple exercise and write it down. And one day, for sure, you're going to hit on something where you go like, oh my, that's an actual business idea. You will. Whether or not you manifest it or not is fine. You don't have to, right? Not everyone should start businesses. But when you go for that exercise, and I go through it every day, multiple times a day, it's a muscle. I, I, it's like, I just do it all the time now. And all the time I hit on things like, that could be a business, that could be a business, that could be a business. You know, that's how these things happen. So that would be my advice. You mentioned that kids are better at innovating than adults. Are you aware of any innovation projects that are aimed at schools? 
Um, to be honest, not really to my knowledge, nor do I necessarily think that that's needed. What I would do with schools, which is a future ambition I secretly hold, you know, I don't know within what time frame, thinking legacy here, but is, is to work with schools to, to set up a concept that I think is the best thing that anyone can do at any scale now, which is to set up, again, for lack of a better description, an innovation lab. An innovation lab. An innovation lab is not even necessarily a space, could be, but it's certainly a block of time and a mindset above anything else. It's a creative safe haven that can take place in a certain time slot in a certain place, but above all, it's a creative safe haven and in that safe haven, there are no bad ideas. There are no bad experiments. It's not retention driven. It's not output driven. There are no grades. There is no scoring of any kind. Of course, the reason why I'm a little bit hesitant is because before we pound this doctrine of perfectionism in, into their heads, that's what they do anyway. It's called play. So, so I would just maybe do a variational play and organize a little bit more into, into an innovation lab. You have, for example, I'm going to bring them in once more, and I promise you I'm not sponsored by them, is IKEA. They have, they have this place in, uh, in the meatpacking district of Copenhagen, very nondescript warehouse. It doesn't look like much. It's a simple warehouse with flaking paint, and it's called Space 10. Space, like outer space, 10, like the number, space 10. Look it up. And it's you, you don't even know it's by Ikea. People would never know. They have their own website. All they do, day in, day out, is play. Play with ideas. Like they turned wood pulp and, and organic waste from, from food production into, uh, into furniture that they mold by using Ikea bags. So the bags are actually, you know, those blue iconic bags. Those are the things they use to mold the shapes. And you get these beautiful, quirky furniture designs. And they create all kinds of weird stuff. There is no output. There's no demand. IKEA funds that. It's IKEA funded, but not labeled. So it's also firewalled from the main business, which is a big concept. Whatever blows up in that lab, metaphorically speaking, doesn't affect the main business. But when something goes really well, when they hit on something and they have a eureka moment, the main business can sort of bring that into the fold and, 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 and absorb that into the... And within learning, I think it's the same thing. It's like have a creative safe haven, not just for the students, for the educators, to, to, to have two hours, three hours a week that are completely off curriculum. Yes, you need to vet the people, but presumably you've vetted your teachers already you have to make sure that that it's a, it's a safe environment in every way but there's no curriculum you, you you really just let people invent a way of interacting with the students freely different ideas and then you learn from that through observation and when something really works you bring that into the mainstream so that's the only thing that i would recommend maybe to answer your question maybe that exists i wouldn't be surprised if it exists I can't be the first one to have that idea, but I'm not aware of such a program, certainly not here, but I, I could be wrong. You've mentioned the activity of putting two concepts together to come up with a, a new idea. You've mentioned the importance of just playing in, in, a, in a safe space 
where you don't have to worry about the out outcome. Dovetailing these together with your retreat and the business of making your own plate and the health, the mind, body, soul thing. Are there any other activities that people do when they join your retreat that, again, leads to, to better innovation? Um, yeah, I mean, there, there, there's a whole range of, of all kinds of activities that we do from slightly more traditional ones, uh, methodology driven to very quirky ones that are designed to enhance neuroplasticity. Like, for example, I've give, given you the plate example, taking it much more high tech now, we have collaborative design sessions in VR. So the whole team is in virtual reality and you're in a, in a, in a virtual arena and you can grab things and put them together and create prototypes of things. That's one thing. But what we also are going to do completely out of this world, almost literally in your mind, is we're going to do food tasting while you're in VR. So, so you're having a meal with, with all kinds of food items, new taste for your palate to begin with, good food, really amazing stuff from the earth, real wholesome stuff that's good for you, sustenance. But you're going to also ingest that while you're in VR with an Oculus Quest. You're, you're, you're on top of Mount Everest in HD with the wind gushing in your ears with, with headsets and everything. So it's fully immersive and you're tasting a, a, a Catalan strawberry. And then, and then suddenly we take you into the desert, into the Sahara, and you can almost feel the oppressive heat. And we have you taste a, a, a spoon of sorbet. And so all of these things, it's fun, first of all. Play is important, right? I think we all agree with that. Play matters. It's serious stuff. But it's also really profound because neuroplasticity is a, is a real thing. Like rewiring your brain to, to open up these creative pathways is about audiovisual stimuli. It's about reframing the context of whatever you're doing. It's about taste, the senses, the most primal things that we have. You know, taste something while we make you smell the smell of honey or lavender while you're on Mount Everest. That does something to your brain. And so those kind of things we're also doing. My final question to you is, if there is one key message or idea that you would like our listener to take away with them, what would it be? I like, I, I guess going back to the beginning, I would just like everyone to dispel any notion of them not being an accomplished creative. Like that's what I really would love people to at least consider walking away from if they're listening. And there will probably be creatives hopefully listening to this, but hopefully also other people who are not in any creative profession who may not see themselves that way. And that's the majority of people. So I'd like everyone to walk away sort of rejecting the notion that they're not creatives and therefore, whether outspokenly or, 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 or just internalized, they think they're not innovators. Every one of you listening is a natural born innovator. You have within you Everyone, the potential to create a life-changing, perhaps a society-changing innovation. It sounds grandiose, but it's not. It's in all of our natures. That's what I'd like people to walk away with and then decide for themselves, do you want to unlock that or leave it dormant for the rest of your life? That's the question I would like people to walk away with and, and ponder. Do you want to leave that dormant or do something with it?
if anybody would be interested in finding out more about you, Mark, or you, the retreats or, or anything, where can they get hold of you? I'm very active on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is sort of my social platform drug of choice. I post there multiple times a day. So just find me under Mark, M-A-R-C, uh, Meki, which is M-E-K-K-I. And my website, because I still have one of those, is simply markmeki.com. So Mark with a C, markmeki.com. And uh, all the information is, is there. Yeah, very happy to hear from people. And that information will be on the notes of the podcast. Wonderful. Okay. Mark, thank you very much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. I wish you all the best with your future innovations, your retreats and everything. Thank you, Ian. It was my pleasure. <laughs>